Hey guys, it's Melissa here from MelissaOatman.com. Welcome to Awaken Your Inner Awesomeness, a daily podcast devoted to spirituality and self-help. If you're new, I want to welcome you. If you're returning, welcome back. So today we have a very special guest with us. I have Miss Dina Mensch in the studio with me, and she has a very interesting story to tell. She is going to talk to us today about her own spiritual awakening, and many of you out there, you have heard me talk about my own spiritual awakening, and I know that many of you are going through this as well, so I think that she will have a lot of insight for you guys today. Dina, welcome. Thank you. So how about if you, I'm so glad to have you. Um, How about if you just start by like telling us a little bit about yourself and then you can kind of tell us how you started going through this spiritual awakening and how you figured out what it was. Sure. So I am a mother of two young boys. They are two years old and three years old. And I have had a lot of different career paths that I have been looking for a way that I could really feel like my life had something that I was giving back to the world. I've always wanted to make the world a better place in whatever way that I can personally. So I think that was a big part of the reason why I kept switching from different things because I wanted to really make a difference in making the world a better place. So that's kind of a little background about me, kind of who I am. Awesome. And so we were talking a little bit before you came on the show And you were telling me that growing up, your family wasn't necessarily religious or spiritual, as you would say, but you loved Little House on the Prairie. And that was sort of the way that you um, learned, I guess, more about spirituality or religion, which I find so funny because I used to love watching Little House on the Prairie with my grandmother. And she was a very religious person, but never went to church. But we always used to watch that and she would watch the Waltons. And so I think a lot of people learned about spirituality or religion in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it was my grandfather that I watched with. And we grew up living in the house right next door to my grandfather. And so I would run over there and we would watch Little House on the Prairie and also it was very interesting. He was a World War II veteran. He was a Marine from World War II. And he would tell me stories about, about you know, his time. And he actually did an audio book uh, to preserve his legacy and, you know, kind of tell about his story. And I just always found my grandfather to be such an interesting person. And I think it's interesting that you said that your grandmother was very religious. My grandfather was religious until he wasn't really able to go to church anymore and that was kind of when I was born and so I thought it was very interesting because my family was religious my mom went to church every single every single weekend with her parents and then once she had kids we kind of did more of the soccer Sundays and different activities and I don't think it was necessarily that there was a lack of religion as much as there was just a more prioritization of doing the sports and activities on the weekends. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that because I know my daughter played basketball and she played for a competitive team and there was a lot of travel, especially on Sundays for games. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I, I went to Sunday school and I did my sacraments. I didn't go to Sunday school. I went to CCD on the weekdays. Um, But when it, when it was in effect, I did go to religious education classes. And so I made my sacraments, but I never went to church on Sundays. Um, But I did, you know what it was, I don't know exactly what it is, the few month program, whatever it is, but I only went the years where you actually made your sacraments right? So they had like this accelerator program where you're supposed to go every year, but the year that you make your confirmation was the only year that I went. And then I had to do like a brief one week catch up. And then I was able to go to that year. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting journey for me because I I had it, uh, the foundation of it, but it wasn't prioritized. 
So when we were talking earlier, you were also telling me that I thought this was such an interesting way to describe it. You said that when you, because you were kind of on the fence about whether or not you truly believed in God, as I think a lot of people who are brought up in a traditional religious home can be, because mm -hmm. see people going to church and saying you should behave one way, but not necessarily behaving that way, or some of the, the rules of religion, of churches, don't necessarily fit or feel true to people. So they tend to kind of want to break away from that. And so mm -hmm. you were talking to me and you said that you, when the day that you really truly believed that there was a God, it was almost like when you discover that you know, Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy and all of those things, but in the opposite. And then you said that everything became more colorful. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I so strongly and so firmly believed, not only that I believed in God, but that I was actually receiving communication directly from God being spoken to. I, I'll tell you the exact moment where I, for the past 24 hours before, had had several things where I was thinking that I had this transformation. And there was this one defining moment where I had had an injury when I was younger and I haven't been, it was a back injury and I haven't been able to touch my toes ever since. And I said, God, if you're real, I'll stand up right now and I'll reach over and touch my toes. And not only did I stand up and reach over and touch my toes, which I haven't been able to do in 15 years, but I put my hands flat on the ground and my knees were perfectly locked. And it was in that exact moment that I said, I, I don't need any more proof. For me, that was my proof, which is a very personal experience because being able to reach over and touch the ground with your hands doesn't mean that God is real, but it was so personal to me where I said, God, I need something else more to become a believer. And that was what I asked for. I said, if you are real, you should be able to allow me to touch the ground right now. And I reached over and I did, I, I touched the ground with my palms on, on the ground. And that is, I, I, I don't know how to also explain the feeling of warmth inside when I put my hands on the ground. So it wasn't just a physical action of, of bending over, but it was that feeling of warmth that I had inside that was, I, I can do this for you. And it was very beautiful to me. I feel like you were feeling God's presence within you at that moment that you bent I over. Do. Mm -hmm. I really do. I've had similar, I mean, people, we talk about this when we do Reiki and when, you know, I do different things for people. It's amazing. You can actually feel the energy in your body. It feels mm -hmm. like warmth and it can feel tingly. And people say they experience many different things when they're in the presence of angels or of, of God. And so I truly believe that that is what you experienced as well. Um, and it's an amazing experience. Now, you said that some people were, your family wasn't necessarily on board with you when you made this discovery. And, and that happens a lot, I will say. Yes. It was very, it was an interesting transformation for me because it was a combination of two things that happened to me where I had this sudden experience where I was saying something that was completely contradictory to my beliefs all the way up until that point, because I wasn't a churchgoer. And when I became old enough to drive and make my own decisions, I very infrequently ever went to church. So when I started saying God is real and very present in my life, it kind of took my family by surprise, I think. Now, 
tell us a little bit more about your awakening once you had that epiphany that yes god is real and god is everywhere what sort of happened for you after that well the part where i feel like you know society i feel like i got mixed up in something that i was mistaken um so basically what happened was i went to a place which was significant to me on an energetic level um something had happened to me that I could never explain six years prior where I had felt like a sudden burst of energy inside of me. That was like almost like an explosion. Um, and so I went to that exact spot that I felt that and wanted to have a conversation with God, but obviously I was having a conversation. What looked like to the place, it was at a hotel restaurant and it was, it wasn't in the middle of a restaurant. It was at a, rooftop deck where there wasn't anybody around it was right as they were opening and so no one was around but I was having a conversation looking up in the sky and no you know I wasn't talking to anybody but I was kind of talking aloud to myself and they came to me and said you're making the staff uncomfortable and so I said to them you know I I they, they came to me and, um, and I was trying to say, like, trying to explain myself. And at that point it was kind of already too late. Cause I guess I had flagged them that I, I, I wasn't right in, in the mind because I was talking to no one. And so I was trying to explain to them, you know, that, that I was just, um, you know, I, I tried to give a brief explanation, but they had had handcuffs with them. And so they handcuffed me um, and thought that I was, you know, mentally not, you know, not there. And so I was kind of in that moment, like I kind of, I had never been handcuffed before in my entire life. And so I was kind of like fighting back. And this is something that I'm not sure that pregnant women will relate to, but um, right in that moment when I got handcuffed, I sneezed. And I had sneezed at a lot of other points and I kind of felt like when I sneezed, you know, people will say, God bless you. And, and it's kind of like an awareness for me, you know, I sneeze and, and, um, but after my, my pregnancies, when I sneeze, sometimes I will pee a little, just a little bit. That's a very common thing that I read about. And so basically I got handcuffed. The second that I got handcuffed, I sneezed and then I, I don't find that to be like a coincidence that I sneezed out of nowhere when I was getting handcuffed. I, I feel like that is, you know, uh, a very interesting thing. You know, if the quote coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous is very strong and powerful to me. So I feel like there was almost a sign in that sneeze. But basically what happened was I, I sneezed and I peed a little and I said to them, I need to use the bathroom because I just peed a little bit because, and you know, I was trying to explain it to them and I said, I need to use the bathroom, but I'm handcuffed at this point and they don't care at all that I said, I need to use the bathroom. And, and, and actually they actually took it in the reverse that I was unable to control my bladder, that I was unable to control, you know, myself and my body because I said that I peed a little as I was getting handcuffed. And so after this whole thing happened, you know, they kept bringing that up. Well, well, it says here in the notes that you're unable to control your bowel movements and your bladder. And I was saying, no, like, that's not exactly right. It's just that my, my bladder isn't really the same since my pregnancies. And it's very, very common for women to sneeze and pee a little bit. And I peed a little tiny bit, you know, but I wanted to use the bathroom and clean myself up. And the fact that I wasn't able to do so, that I wasn't able to use the bathroom and clean myself up, um, was very upsetting to me. So I was kind of like, like, I didn't do anything wrong. Let me go. I want to use the bathroom. And so as I was kind of like fighting a little bit to, to go to the bathroom and to, and to, you know, I wasn't like there and in restraints and just like going with what they were asking me to do. So at that point they put like foot handcuffs, foot cuffs on me. And they like carried me away, like by the feet and the hands. And so for me, like in that moment, I never felt closer to God. Actually, I felt like he was there with me through that entire experience because it was very, you know, experience that was 
not like anything I had ever felt before in my life. You know, I'd never been in trouble with the law. I've never been arrested. I've never been anything like that. And I felt the presence of God so strongly in that moment. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much my experience. That must be a terrifying experience for you. It really was uh, not terrifying in a way where you would think it would be terrifying. I would have thought it would be terrifying if you had told me that just two days prior, I would have thought I would have been terrified in the moment. I never felt more beautiful. I never felt more connected to God. I never felt more spiritual. It was in the exact same spot that that happened that I said I had an energetic feeling six years prior. And that burst of energy was something that I'll, I've never been able to explain. Um, and I've gotten closer over the years of being able to explain it, but it was at the exact moment, that exact place. And so it was the reason why I went there to begin with. And so the fact that I was handcuffed there and taken away there and they actually, you know, they, they, it was when, when they actually took me away by the, the, the handcuffs and the foot cuffs and all that, um, they injected me with like a tranquilizer. So I woke up in the hospital and, you know, so I don't even have any recollection between those two events. You know, I woke up in the hospital and so that part was very traumatic to my family because all they hear is, you know, my, my husband got a call that was your wife is, has been taken away and she's, and she's been tranquilized. And so my husband getting that call was very, very thrown off. And when I tried to explain it, I felt like he had already, he didn't have any, um, you know, care of what actually happened before the handcuffs went on. But it was so out of character for me that I felt like, hey, I just, I think I, I should be able to explain myself here. And then I was like, well, you know, I was kind of talking to God. And, and so then they were like, no, you cannot have a conversation with God. And so it was very interesting for sure. But it, it affirmed my belief. It didn't, it didn't frighten me at all. It sounds like it was just the perfect storm of confusion and misunderstanding for sure to, you know to end up which i believe happens a lot honestly in those kinds of situations but um that had to i mean i can't imagine having an experience like that and the fact that you described that it wasn't as frightening for you as you thought it would be i can understand when you are connecting with God, one with source, and you realize you're one with God, there is a peace that comes over you. So I do understand what you're saying when you say that you were not scared, which mm -hmm. if you had never been in trouble with the law before, I can't imagine not being frightened with them handcuffing you and then putting cuffs on your feet and then tranquilizing you on top of that. So mm -hmm. the fact that you were calm absolutely leads me to believe that you know, God's presence was with you to reassure you, basically. Mm -hmm. And, and in yeah. a way was saying, like, I am here with you. Right. And so when I woke up, I, the, I was still cuffed, but in like medical cuffs, they were white, soft medical cuffs that I was cuffed to the bed. And so I woke up, you know, I was out for hours. I think it was like 13 hours that I was, you know, asleep for. And then when I woke up, I was very calm and peaceful. And when the doctor came in, she introduced herself and her name was Samantha Cross. And she said, hi, my name is Samantha Cross. And I said, and I was at this point, because I had just woken up, I was kind of out of it a little bit. And I said, oh, hi, Samantha. And she said, no, my name is Dr. Cross. And when she said cross, I felt like, oh, like this is all part of my journey. And of course, and tell me what it is that I should be doing because I am here to serve you and here to make a difference. And like I had mentioned earlier, I had been wanting to make a difference. And so connecting with 
God made sense, but I had always wanted to make a difference as me making a difference. I felt like it was, it was me and my journey was very personal. Everyone has their own free will. Everyone gets to do what they want to do. And so when I felt like I was one with God, then I said, all right, we're a team. What do, what do you and I want to accomplish together and not what do I want to accomplish as an individual? too so after this incident happened to you you went to one doctor who diagnosed you with bipolar disorder and so was that right after that incident so it's actually a strange series of events again that happened in order for me to get to that point it was just it was several days later but what happened was my husband said to me, I think that it would be a good idea for you to go see a therapist. And I said, okay, you know, obviously when you wake up from that situation and, you know, you're taken away from the hospital and your family's not really sure what happened. And to be honest, I had said, you know, that I was a little bit confused about everything myself. I, I wasn't at, at that point saying um, that that I wasn't confused. So I thought going to a therapist seemed like a great idea. So my husband made an appointment and he made it and he made the next available appointment, which was five days after the appointment, the, the being released from the hospital. Well, on the morning of the fifth day, the therapist called and canceled my appointment because she wasn't feeling well that day. And so my husband and, you know, at this point, my friends are involved. My friend works, you know, in the, as, you know, in the, in, in a, a facility, like a mental hospital. And so she was involved and my, my husband, when he got the call that my therapy appointment was canceled, he kind of didn't want to wait another five days for me to be seen by making another appointment. So my friend said to him, you could call crisis center. And so it's very interesting because the reason why a person would call crisis center is very different than a appointment getting canceled. But in the moment, my husband and my friend thought it was a good idea because they didn't want to wait for me to be seen by a traditional therapist. So when the crisis center gets called I feel like it's when they come to see you a family member has called crisis center and so they feel like you're in a crisis and they're responding to it and I didn't feel like I was in a crisis because the therapy appointment that I was supposed to go to I, I had there was nothing I was saying to them you know the sky seems more beautiful and the trees seem everything you know everything seems to me more beautiful in the world and I didn't think I was in crisis at all I felt like I was quite the opposite of in crisis so when the when the caseworker came for crisis center I had said that to her I said you know I feel like I I have a relationship with God, which I'm so grateful for, which I never felt like I really had before on a personal one-on-one -on -one level. Um, and what I was saying earlier with the sneezes is that things would happen to me and I would sneeze and I would feel like God was talking to me directly. And, and in that moment, it accompanied a sneeze. And so it happened a, a multiple times. And it would be like he was drawing my attention to something when I would sneeze. And so I was saying that sometimes when it happened, when I would sneeze, it was almost comical. Because when you're being handcuffed, the reaction that you would have is not normally to sneeze. As somebody is, is putting the handcuffs around your wrist, it was, the, it was the timing of it. Was the split second the handcuffs went on, I sneezed. That's just not, a, I just don't feel like that's a normal human reaction. There was no pollen around. I'm not, I wasn't ill. It, there wasn't a reason, a logical reason for me to sneeze in that moment of being handcuffed. So I felt like God is almost in a way funny to me of the way that he's communicating with me and my body and, and these things. And so I had said, you know, not only do I have a relationship with him, but I feel like I, I can treat him like I had said to people 
my husband included, you know, I feel like Morgan Friedman in Bruce Almighty, that he's funny. And, and that's more of my version of God, that he's down to earth and he's making jokes, you know, and things like that. And so the point that I was trying to make there is just that when I had, when I did talk to them, I said, you know, I don't feel like I'm in crisis at all. I feel like God and me are, are together in this. And so she said to me, you need to go to the hospital, the mental hospital. And I said, no, I don't think I have to go to the mental hospital. I think you're confusing the, the situation here. I don't think that at all. And she said to me, if you don't go, I'll have the police here in 10 minutes to take you if you don't voluntarily go there. And so I said, okay. And I said, um, you know, at this point, um, you know, luckily my mom was actually visiting from Virginia at this point because she got scared of me, you know, being, being hospitalized. So she came up to visit from Virginia. And so she was visiting at our house. So luckily she was there to take care of my sons, but I remember going to say goodbye to them and not knowing, of course, like what, what would entail after I got sent there, but I actually was there for 12 days, which is something that was very frustrating to me because the only reason that I was there for 12 days is because that's how long it took me to sit in front of a judge. And so for me, I said goodbye to my sons thinking I was going to go there for a day, you know, and be released. And I was there for 12 days. And during that 12 day span, it was Mother's Day. So I spent Mother's Day alone, locked in a, you know, in a room where it was just brick walls and a plastic bed and me. And again, I never felt closer to God saying, you know, my kids are luckily young enough that at this point they were 11 months old and two years old. And so, um, I had said, you know, they don't know what mother's day is. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like with my sons that it was something, it was more mother's day at that point was for me more so than it was for them as an actual holiday. But I felt like I was going to do big things you know, me and my sons together, you know, and so I didn't feel the same way that I would have thought that I would have felt being away from them on Mother's Day again prior. I felt almost like I wasn't alone, even though I was sitting alone in a room. I, mean, I can't imagine the ordeal that you went through. That is it sounds like everything was totally mishandled for you, which is frustrating, and I'm sure it was frustrating for you. So what happened after you get out, you come home? How does right. your so, continue? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Uh, just how did your awakening continue once you sure. got out and you came home? Sure. So what happened to me if you don't mind me going back in the story when I was first there, um, several different things happened when I was inside of the institution where I almost felt like I kept looking up at the sky saying, is this why I'm here? Do you, do you want to make changes to the mental health care system? And you're putting me in a position to see some of the things that are going wrong? Because at this point, I feel like I can communicate with God, but it's not at a level where I am very crystal clear about what the communication is. Cause I think there's a little bit of a learning curve there in kind of developing what it is that you can communicate. And so I kept asking questions. So basically I get to this place and they put me in a room with a roommate. And the very first thing, this is the very first thing that happens to me. I walk into the room. He is starting to hyperventilate. And she says that she has an inhaler that they're holding from her. And she says, they're really going to do it this time. They're really going to kill me. I can't breathe. I'm having trouble breathing. And she's really struggling, hyperventilating, having trouble breathing. And I'm the only person at that point that saw her. And so I ran up to the front desk and I said, my roommate, I don't know what's wrong. Please, somebody, a doctor needs to go or somebody needs to go. And they shrugged it off and they said, she doesn't need any care. And I said, 
I, no one saw her but me. Please go check her out. She was struggling to breathe. And then I'm starting to explain what was happening. As she said, she needs her inhaler. I don't know if that's if you know she, if she even has an inhaler. She's struggling to breathe. Please go check her out. And they said no. And I continued. I said, I. I have a law degree. I am a, a licensed attorney, even though I don't really practice that much. And I said, this is not the way people need to be treated. And I said, you know, I started to say something and they're like, you're not her lawyer in here. You're a patient. And I said, of course, I'm not a lawyer, but I am a human being and she's struggling to breathe. Someone needs to go take care of her and see if she's okay because she's struggling to breathe right now. And so I... Sorry about the noise. I, you know, I wanted her to be seen by somebody. And I didn't like the way that she was being treated at all. And so the situation that was going on, I basically... So the situation that was going on, I kept saying to them, you know, this isn't the way you treat people. We don't have, you know, we don't have a system where you just leave someone hyperventilating in a room. Even if she, if, if it's a mental thing that's going on with her, she should be cared for and treated. If it's not, if she's just looking for attention, I still think she should have been cared for and treated. I just think that whatever it was, I, I was the only one that saw her. And it wasn't that somebody came to check on her and said, she's fine. No one went to check. No one went to check at all. And so basically for me, I, I was having a hard time with that. And so I, when I spoke to the psychiatrist, they said to me, you know, we heard you had a manic episode while you were here. And I said to them, are you talking about the thing with my roommate where she was struggling to breathe and I came to the front desk? And he said, yes, you were acting manic. And I said, I personally feel like I was acting like a human, not I understand that I was showing manic symptoms where I was screaming at them and saying, someone needs to go get her. Someone needs to do something about this. I was doing that, of course, but I was saying to them, I was acting like a human. And so there was, there was a lot of different things where I felt like people, they just weren't being treated right. And so I said to the staff, I think that something needs to change. And, um, and they said to me, thinking that, that things need to change and thinking that you're sent here by God to change them is delusions of grandeur. And I said to them, I don't think that I was sent here by God to change them. What I meant to say was, you know, while I'm here, while I, there's a miscommunication, while all these things lined up and I'm seeing things that aren't going right and my phrasing of things they, I felt like they kept saying, oh, you think God sent you here. The reason that you're here is because God sent you, because you're here to be the one to change the mental health care system. And I'm like, that, you're, you're twisting my words, I felt like. I felt like they were twisting my words for sure. Because there's one, you know, there's one thing where, you know, you say to God, hey, you know, what can I do to make the world a better place? There's probably a lot of different things that everybody can do on a daily basis to make the world a better place. And so I just felt like that might be one of them. And so for me, being diagnosed initially with bipolar disorder was something that I said, you know, I think that I should get a second opinion. And so I got a referral to someone who is a neurologist and a theologian. He has two degrees. And when I went to talk to him, he's the one that said to me, I think that you were misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I think that you are having a spiritual awakening. And he said, I want you to get off the medication that they prescribe to you as quickly as possible. Like we'll wean you off of the medication. And um, that, though, for my family was something that they did not want me to do. 
because I had been diagnosed by a psychiatrist and they didn't want to believe that I didn't have bipolar disorder. At that point, they thought that I did have it because they heard from a psychiatrist that I did. And so I basically had two conflicting doctor's reports. And at that point, when you have two conflicting doctor's reports, what, you know, what do you do in that situation? And so that for me was something that I, um, I felt like, um, that's kind of where my spiritual journey went after I was released. It went to figuring out, should I be taking medication? Is it for the best interest of me, my family, society that I'm on bipolar medication? Or should I not be medicated? And when I had two different doctors, both saying conflicting, extremely conflicting things, one saying you shouldn't be medicated at all, and the other one saying that you should be medicated. For me, I guess I began a quest of figuring out, you know, whether or not I have bipolar disorder. I think that was kind of where I went. So I started doing a lot of research about bipolar disorder, about energy, about spirituality, about, um, about, the universe, uh, philosophers. I, I just started doing a lot of research about a lot of different things. And I was trying to get to the bottom of an answer of whether or not, basically, you know, was it in the best interest of me and my family? I have two young children. I, of course, I didn't want anything to happen to them. If I, if I had a mental health condition and I was unmedicated, it's almost to a point where, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to put anybody in jeopardy for sure, but I also didn't want to unnecessarily medicate myself if that wasn't the appropriate diagnosis. I wanted to find out what the appropriate diagnosis was. Yeah, and that had to be super frustrating because I know um, just from my own experience with my children, you know, doctors want to prescribe the anti-anxiety medications and different medications very quickly and the problem is there's so many out there they don't all work the same way finding the right medication is always a process and sometimes right. i think you know there are alternative ways to deal with anxiety or different you know different things going on but I, honestly it sounds like all the things that happened to you were just very weird misunderstandings from uh -huh. incredibly I want to say coincidences that all of these things happened but as you said there is no such thing as a coincidence like everything happens for a reason mm -hmm. so where are you right now on your journey now I am in a position where I am working on writing a book about my experience and I have gone with the, you know, the thought of the doctor who is also a theologian who, you know, told me that I have had a religious awakening. Um, I, I had a second experience, though, <laughs> of my family being concerned about me, and I was brought to another psychiatrist, and I, the first thing that I said to the psychiatrist was, do you have any religious affiliation? May I ask you, you know, is it an okay question for me to ask you if you have a religious affiliation? And he said, that's perfectly fine, and I'll answer it. And he said, I was born and baptized a Roman Catholic, but I've never practiced a day in my life, is what he said his answer was. And I said, with all due respect to you, I don't think you're the right person to talk to me. And I, I think that what is happening to me is a religious awakening. And I also have a doctor that I have been talking to, who is also a theologian. And, you know, he thinks that that is his opinion of that's what's happening to me. 
Well, my family who brought me to the psychiatrist to begin with, they are not on the same page with me of the level of believing that I am. Like they think that when I say sneezes are not coincidences, that that is mental delusion. And when I say that things are happening coincidentally and that I'm feeling like, you know, it's a famous Albert Einstein quote that says coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. So when I describe my coincidences as God being funny and comical, they again thought that that was delusions. And so they brought me, and, and again, at this point, I had tried to be as cordial with my family as I could be and saying, okay, if you want me to go see a psychiatrist, that's fine, but I wanted to do it on my terms. And that's why I asked them, what is your religious affiliation? And when I said to them, with all due respect, but I don't think that you are the person to be evaluating me on a psychiatric perspective when you don't have any religious affiliation, how could you possibly understand what I'm experiencing and going through and whether it's delusions or if it's perfectly natural and normal for God to speak to humans? And so he said, a cancer doctor doesn't have to have cancer to treat a cancer patient. And I said, okay, well, while that may be true, I don't think that you can understand what I'm saying as much as my other doctor, who's a theologian, who can understand and is telling me that he thinks that I had a religious awakening. And so they immediately said to me that refusal to talk to the psychiatrist was a reason to be taken back to a mental institution. And I said, I will talk to you. You don't have to send me to a mental institution. I'll talk to you. I just said that I thought that I raised a very adequate point that that you're not the best doctor to be speaking to me. That doesn't mean that I won't talk to you. I'll be compliant. I will be compliant. I said, please, let's continue the session. I said, I didn't mean to offend you. I just, I want to make sure that we're on the same page here. And they said, it's too late for that. There's three officers outside and you're going to be going to the mental institution. And I said to them, I will talk to you. I will tell you anything you want to know. I, you know, please don't take me away from my children. I do not want to go back to this place. And so they said, there's nothing you can do now. You need to go with the police. And they said, they said, you know, uh, you know, I was trying, you know, I was trying to talk to them. I was trying to say, you know, I, I again, I think this is a misunderstanding. I, I don't think you're, and then at this point, I'm saying, well, you know, in a philosophical sense, you know, what is truth? And, and, and can God speak to people? And is it really just a subjective thing? Or is it, you know, what's going on? And, and I felt like I was making very logical points and things like that. And so at this point, I felt stronger than ever in the sense that I had had this, I felt like I was more one with God than I've ever been in my entire life. I feel like the Holy Spirit was like inside of my body in this next, you know, experience that I had where I said in a legal capacity, somebody, somebody's rights have to be violated for there to be a law to make change. And, and I said in my mind um, having a legal background, you know, when, when interracial marriage became legal, it was because two people of different races went and broke the law and got married that the change was then made using them as a case. And so I said, maybe this is a situation where my rights should be violated. So that way I can bring a, a court case to make changes. And I said to them, you know, I feel like I have freedom of religion. This is the United States of America. I feel like I have a constitutional right to the freedom of religion. And if I feel that God can talk to me, I don't think that that should be a danger to myself or society. And, you know, that's the standard that they use being a danger to yourself or society. And they said that having thoughts from God was 
a danger because they didn't know what God was going to tell me to do and things like that. Like I didn't have the ability to have my own free will because I was allowing God to speak to me. And I said, I still feel like I have a hundred percent of my free will. I, and, and I don't feel like this is a bad negative thing at all. And they said, well, you know, the fact that you're, that you're in this situation, you know, we feel like you need to be taken to this mental health institution. And so I sat there and I said to them, I'm not going to walk to the police car. I said, if you, I'm not going to resist you at all, but I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to move my legs and walk. And so I sat there and they talked to me for at least a half an hour trying to convince me. They asked me every minute or two. They tried to have a conversation with me, you know, asking me if I had siblings, asking me where I went to college. And then they would say, all right, it's time to go. Get up and walk. And I said, with all due respect, I'm not going to fight, but I'm not going to move my legs. I don't have to move my legs. If you want to take me, you can take me. And so over and over again, they kept going back and forth. And then eventually they picked me up, three officers, they picked me up and they brought me outside. And I had said, I've never felt stronger in my life. I've never felt you're, you're carrying me away. And I've never felt stronger that I know my own mind and, and you don't get to tell me what's right and what's wrong, I get to make that decision for myself. And I said to, you know, I said to them, when, when they brought me outside, they put me on the curb and then they said, all right, get in the car. And I said, no, I said, I will not move a muscle in my body. I just, I laid there and I said, I will not move a muscle in my body. You will not allow me to feel like I have have to comply with this and so the second time that I went there I felt like I was making a stand against against um you know a voice from God what is that you know because it is so personal it's such a personal relationship that you have with God that I feel like a psych, a psychiatrist shouldn't really get to play a part in that. And so for me, it's been a lot of questioning what is right and what, what should change. And is God helping me on this journey to write a book, to bring more awareness to this? And if so, I'm, I've, you know, kind of committed myself to this mission but at the same time, my spiritual journey has just been a lot of reading and researching and, and the, the, the way that I research and the way that I, I hear things, I relate them in a way where I, I kind of feel like it's an amazing puzzle that has been put together piece by piece and things that I didn't even realize when I was being taken away, I've since realized and I read a book about the power of habits. And in that book, it basically said something that related back to my mental health journey. And it said, you know, that it used to be viewed as homosexuality being viewed as a mental disorder. That was what the textbook said. And nowadays, we, of course, do not view that as a mental disorder we view it as a sexual orientation but the books change so what I had said to them was you know maybe it's time to change the book on spirituality and the definition and the when I was there it was very interesting to me because there were some people that said to me I feel like I can speak to archangels and that's why they were there. And they said, it was my roommate actually that said, you know, I have the power to speak to archangels. And I thought she was one of the most beautiful souls that I've ever met in my life. And, and I said to her, you know, why are you here? And she had said, you know, it's because I have the ability to speak to archangels. And, you know, I had somebody call about me being able to do that. And, and you don't know the full story, of course. I don't know what goes on behind her private sessions and if there was more to her story or, or what. But 
it seemed to me like the sole reason why she was there is because they viewed it as a problem for society that she could communicate with archangels. And so I'm not sure, honestly, I'm in the middle of this process. This was Mother's Day, May of 2019. And then again, in August, the second experience was August of 2019. And so it's been a little over a year now that I have just been reading and researching as much as I can and putting together these puzzle pieces of saying, you know, do I have a role to play in, in, in the change of, of mental health care systems? I'm not sure yet, you know, because I haven't, I haven't done anything to make a change yet, but it's definitely on my radar. Uh, and I would love to be able to, you know, to bring light to the conversation about whether or not, you know, our freedom of religion, like where does that border mental health? And I think that absolutely you should be writing that book. And I think that mental health in our country definitely needs to be addressed. I don't think we do enough for it. Um, just in your example of talking about how you were treated, it doesn't matter if you were wielding a knife at someone and you come in, you're still a human being. And if there is a mental illness going on, you should still, you know, people still need to be treated with dignity and with respect. And I think that you definitely brought that to light. But the fact that you were just trying to get help for your roommate is, it's incredible that you were treated that way. Um, and I've, you know, I've seen myself firsthand how that can be because I had an episode with my son in which, you know, we had to deal with doctors and it was a less than ideal experience because you get treated like, Mm -hmm. really it's like okay you're a burden you know why you're here right. and that should not be the case at all um and I think there are a lot of people out there who probably are going through spiritual awakening and it does make you feel like you're going crazy it really does I tell people mm -hmm. that all of the time because you it's just so intense and it's the peeling away of layers of things that we've been conditioned to learn and we're unlearning and we're learning new things. And a lot of people are able to have conversations, you know, with spirit, with angels, with God, and we all communicate differently. And so I would just encourage you just to continue in what you're doing, because I think that it's, I think you definitely should be helping with the, with your book. I think your book is going to open people's eyes because your experience is just incredible. I cannot believe that you had to go through all of that. <laughs> very, very it in, yeah, <laughs> it was incredibly beautiful to me, the experience, especially the second time, because the first time I was completely angry and I felt like I was being taken away from my kids. It was Mother's Day. I was, I felt like I felt very much like God was with me, but then at the same time, I had that human reaction as well of anger. And the second time, I didn't have that as much of a human reaction, I felt like, as much as I had a, I'm on a mission to, to write this book. And where I kind of, after the first time that I went, I didn't pursue the book because my husband said to me, can't we just let that be in the past? I don't want to relive it. If you write a book about it, you're going to relive it over and over and over again. And I don't want that for our lives. I don't want you to have to continuously revisit that with our family. And you're putting us in a position that we don't want to be in. So I said, that's a valid point that I thought that he made. And so I didn't pursue writing the book. 
it wasn't until after the second time that I was institutionalized that I said, I'm sorry if, if it is inconvenient for you for me to write this book, but it's something that I feel like I have to do. And so if I didn't have the second experience, I don't think I would have written the book. So for me, it was almost everything happened the way that it, it, it was supposed to unfold for me. And something that I thought was a very defining moment for me is when I was there, they gave me a book to read and I, I look at the book and it was the diary of Anne Frank. And I said to them, this is the reading that you give to people in a, in a mental health institution. I said, this is one of the most depressing books of all time. And if you have people that are coming in here, many of the people are suicidal. And why would you give them a book about the Holocaust? Why would you, do you think that words aren't powerful? Words are extremely powerful in my opinion, because what I was saying to them was they give you pens that are made of rubber because they don't want you to have a weapon. And of course that makes sense. You're not allowed to have any razors. You're not allowed to shave in any way. And that makes sense. Those are all physical weapons, but then you don't think that the diary of Anne Frank is a problem because I felt like for you to give that book to patients, it just didn't make sense to me. And so they gave it to me and there's really barely anything to do there. So I read it for the first time. I had never read the diary of Anne Frank before. And as I was reading it, as I was going through it, it's, you know, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's a beautiful story um, in a way that it's eye-opening, right? It's a, it's a very historical piece. And so when I was reading it, I, not, I didn't mean to say beautiful story. I meant to say historic story. Um, and so I was in the shower and the way that the mental health showers are, the, you, you only get water for 10 seconds at a time. And so it, it was a very defining moment for me because I kept having to push the button. And when you have shampoo in your hair and you have your eyes closed, there is, uh, it, it's like frustrating because it's hard to find the button when your eyes are closed. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, where is that button? You know, and I'm getting frustrated. And I had this moment of clarity where I said, I am so grateful that what I'm searching for right now is a button for water and a shower and not that I'm in a gas chamber. And it was a very, very powerful moment for me where I said, I'm, I'm upset because I don't have the convenience that I have at home of having unlimited water. I only have water for 10 seconds at a time and then I have to push the button again. And I said, that should give you perspective on the people that were put to a gas chamber. And I had that thought and it was so powerful to me. And again, that warmth of saying, you know, like you are so blessed and you are here to tell a story and them giving you that book is just another piece of that puzzle of let's think about how mental health patients are feeling when they come into this place, because Taking somebody who is suicidal and putting them in a mental health care institution and treating them like they're less than human at some points is not doing anything for their ability to want to live. If you're not treating them like they're human, why are we then saying that that is an acceptable way to treat somebody who is considering like whether or not their life has meaning in the grand scheme of things, I feel like people that go to a mental health care Institute should have unlimited access to phones and their family. And if they're going through crisis, you know, the place that I was in, they didn't have a phone that had unlimited talk to your family. They had a phone where you had to have quarters. And it was amazing to me because if you had a dollar, the staff wouldn't give you four quarters. They would not give you four quarters for a dollar. And so I asked my dad to bring in a roll full of quarters and I was handing them out to everybody. And I said, if you want to make a phone call to your family, here's quarters. And they were so appreciative of me. And I said, this should, this is, should not be the way that it is that, you know, a, a bunch of people, they kept saying, you know, to the staff, I have a $5 bill. I have dollar bills. Can I please get quarters? I would love to call my family. 
And I watched this happen day in and day out. I was in second place for nine days. And I watched people saying, I would love to call my family right now, but because I don't have quarters, I only have a dollar. I can't get, I can't get a phone call. That's not the way mental health care patients should be treated. And I, that's why I think that you writing this book is going to be so super important, really, really important for you to share your story. And I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing it bravely with us, because I know that it can't be easy to have to relive all of that. But I know that there are probably people out there who are listening to your story and thinking, oh my gosh, I've gone through similar things, or I know family members who have and who have also been in um, the system in mental health care facilities that have not been treated the way that they should have. And so I think that you're doing such an amazing thing in doing that. Now, our time is almost up, but I want to give people an opportunity if they want to reach out to you, because there may be somebody out there listening now who has a story that they would like to share with you that maybe you can include in your book or maybe will help you on your journey and helping. So how can people work with you or get a hold of you if they would like to? Absolutely. I would love to hear any and all stories. I, I have it on my to-do list to write a book about exactly that from both perspectives of the people that are going through mental health and then also the family of people that are going through mental health because I think it's really valuable. I, I've said to my husband so many times that getting a phone call from the hospital saying that I was handcuffed and brought there and tranquilized is not an easy phone call to receive at all. And so I think that there's definitely a perspective that should be shared from both sides. So my, um, my Instagram is probably the easiest way for people to get in touch with me. And so I have my first and last name, um, which is D-I-N-A-M-O-E-N-C-H. So that is my Instagram. And um, I think that that's the easiest way. Um, and then um, yeah, I, I would love to hear these stories because it is definitely something that I want to include and I want for people to, to be able to openly talk about because it's so hard to go through an experience and one opinion is not necessarily the opinion, you know, spirituality is so unbelievably subjective, I really think. And, and the fact that our country has freedom of religion, I think, should be beautifully celebrated. And so the fine line between, you know, respecting religion and then being able to talk to people who understand religion is very interesting to me. And I think that there's a lot of things in the psychiatric textbooks that are outdated, similar to, you know, the point that I brought up about homosexuality being viewed as a mental disease or disorder or, you know, and not a sexual orientation. I think the same way about religion that a lot of the psychiatric textbooks, they, I'm not trained in any way in that field, but I feel like, you know, there is a, a way to rewrite the way it is that people are treated and people that have gifts. Um, I think that it's hard for them to feel like they want to celebrate them. And for other people who want to open their lives up to these gifts, I think that they're scared. I talk to people and I say to them, have you ever considered that? And they'll say to me things like, well, I don't want to end up where you did. You know, I don't want to end up in the mental health care system because you all of a sudden had this religious awakening and look where you ended up. I don't want that for my life. And that's a valid point for, for them. That's how they feel. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I celebrate what happened to me and I feel validated by the experience that I had. And I don't look at it like it was a mistake at all. I feel like I was in the exact right place for my spiritual journey. And so that's something that, you know, I, um, I just want 
people to not be scared to be able to speak their mind because towards the end I was saying, you know, I got it wrong. God can't talk to me at all just because I wanted to be released and go home to my family. I, I said what they wanted me to, I said what they wanted to hear. I felt like I said, absolutely. I was wrong. God can't talk to me. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that, you know? And, and so I wasn't openly saying what I felt like God was saying to me because I felt like I couldn't if I wanted to go home to my family. But I want to thank you for coming on here and for sharing it with us today. And I would highly encourage anyone out there who has a story, a similar story, who would like to get into contact with Dina. Um, I'm sure that she would love to talk to you and hear your perspective because I think that your book is such an important thing and I think that you really should continue with that. And so thank you, Dina, so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. I just want to say that I'm planning, I'm almost finished writing it and it should be released in December. So I'm very excited about that. Awesome. awesome. So all of you need to look for Dina's book coming out then in December, hopefully. Fingers crossed that everything works out with that for you. And I yeah. want to thank you guys so much for being here with us today. As always, if you like this podcast, please subscribe. Please leave a positive review from wherever you're listening. You can leave me some stars on iTunes and share it with others. That helps others and it helps me in my purpose in helping others heal. And if you want to get a hold of Dina, her contact information will be in the show notes. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media. I go live Mondays on Facebook at 630 Central where I do a free card reading. And if you show up for the reading, I will pull a card especially for you. I post videos to Instagram and I have free guided meditations on my YouTube channel. If you want to work with me, you can go to my website, melissaoatman.com. There you'll see all of the services that I offer and you can purchase a session directly from the website. To schedule it, simply contact me and all of my sessions are done online through Zoom. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I hope that you guys have a beautiful day from wherever you're listening. I'm sending you so much love and light. And I will talk to you soon. Bye, guys.